Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Horror Lab, where we dissect the best in horror movies each and every week. I'm your co-host, Will, and alongside me, I've got my co-host, Chris. And guys, we are diving into our 28th episode. No, I'm lying. Our 29th episode of the Horror Lab. Closing in on 30, the big 3-0. Soon we'll be at my age, which is depressing. But (laughs) until then, we'll just continue to count down and count down and count down. So guys, we're diving into an all-time horror classic. Uh, No doubt about it, undisputed horror classic. Uh, Arguably one of the most influential, if not the most influential horror movie ever made, depending on who you ask. We're diving into... The 1960 Alfred Hitchcock classic, Psycho, which... Probably one of the best movies ever made. Oh, I agree. Just from a filmmaking standpoint, it is uh, phenomenal. So our plan right now, just as a heads up, is to try and do this in one episode. But given the uh, the scope of the movie, the influence of the movie, given some of the themes in the movie, we may actually cover this over too. So we'll sort of decide that over the next 45 or so minutes. And uh, you may hear us just say, you know what, part two on the way. So stick with us. We, uh, we have a lot to, to sort of go over and discuss, and it should be a pretty great episode. Uh, as a reminder, episode 28 of the Horror Lab, which is Misery from 1990, is available for streaming wherever you get your podcasts. So Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, yada, 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 so on and so forth, et cetera, et cetera. Be sure to like, follow, subscribe, leave us a five-star review. Uh, Those matter. We're trending upwards in a lot of things. And so I'll talk about that here in a second. As always, I'll say it on the front end so I don't have to say it on the back end. Be sure to follow us on social media. TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, at Horror Lab Pod. On Facebook, The Horror Lab. And uh, if you have any questions, want to submit an episode request, want a guest guest on on an episode, a future episode, Email us at horrorlabpod at gmail.com. Chris, before we dive into our synopsis summary, did you know that we are right on the cusp of surpassing 2,000 total listens? I think you told me. <laughs> I did. I mentioned it like a week ago. I think at that point we had had like a little over 1,500. 1700? 1700, yeah. We're like right at, it's like 1,995 listens. Dang. So we're, we're right at, crazy. I know. And, and those, yeah. those listens have trended upwards really significantly in the last like 45 days or so, 30 to 45 days. So uh, thank you for those who are tuning in every week. I will admit that the worst part of my week is the editing process because I hate hearing my voice. But the best part of my week is when the episode finally releases and it's out in the wild, into the world, and uh, you guys get your hands on it. So thank you for listening. Thank you for the reviews. Thank you for the positive feedback, the encouragement, the, uh, the messages, the emails, all of it. We, we really appreciate you guys. And uh, we're glad to continue what we're doing. All right. Enough of the housekeeping stuff because we have a really long episode or at least a really significant movie to dive into. If you've never seen... Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, please do us a massive favor and watch it. Do not watch the 1990s remake with, uh, who, who was it? Vince Vaughn. Vince Vaughn. I love Vince Vaughn. He's a, a master comedian. But that version of the movie was terrible. 
also avoid all of the psycho sequels, psycho two and on and on and on. They're really bad. (laughs) So stick with the original, pretend like there's no extended universe and um, really, really dive into what Alfred Hitchcock was able to accomplish with this film. I heard the TV show was pretty good. Yeah. Formiga. Yeah. So Bates motel. Yeah. So we, we started watching it a couple years back at the recommendation of my mom. Shout out to mom. Number one fan. Number one fan. And we actually stopped watching it after the first few minutes of the first episode, because trigger warning, there's a pretty, like pretty brutal rape scene at the beginning. And so it was really difficult to like get past that as a, you know, first impressions, lasting impressions kind of thing. Yeah. For us to, you know, so that was rough. So know that going in, if you're going to watch Bates Motel, from what I hear, it's critically acclaimed, uh, terrific sort of prequel to, to the backstory, you know, uh, of psycho, but just know going in that it's got some really rough themes and some pretty rough scenes going in, uh, within the first, you know, 15, 20 minutes of the show. So, um, as a reminder, our goal here at the Har Lab is not to replace your viewing experience. We want you to watch these movies and then give us a listen. Our goal is to enhance your viewing experience. So watch it, think through some things, figure some things out, come and listen to us. And uh, yeah, hopefully we can enhance your, uh, your experience with each of these horror movies. All right, Chris, in short, what is Psycho about? What do we need to know? And it's a disturbing movie it is for sure <laughs> it's a very disturbing movie so um it begins with um uh, a scene in a phoenix hotel uh marion crane she's a real estate secretary and her boyfriend sam lewis just had a you know just had a nice meet and greet <laughs> at their at their hotel and um they're actually really in love with one another, but they can't get married because Sam has a lot of debt. And so um, Sam feels really bad about it. And uh, But Marion, that's one of her biggest fears. So at work, um, she's given $40,000 in cash to um, take to the bank. Um, there's like a creepy uh, real estate client who, who brought $40,000 in cash. And he's like hitting on her and everything. And so instead of um, taking it to the bank, Marion's like um, lies that she's sick and she runs away with the money and um, she runs away with the money. She's trying to drive to see Sam Loomis and she, you know, it's raining a lot. And so she stops for the night at the Bates Motel, which is located right off the main highway. And from there, she meets Norman Bates, who's the proprietor, who, who lives in a terrifying mansion right above the, uh, overlooking the motel. And um, yeah, we, we notice very weird things about Norman. He uh, He's fighting with uh, his mom really loudly about Marion. He, he's a taxidermist. He stuffs birds. And, um, you know, he, he wants to spend time with Marion and he's, you know, even, uh, has a people where where he's, yeah, yeah. He creeps (laughs) on her. Um, (laughs) (laughs) now I was just thinking about the, uh, 
the the version from the the Vince Vaughn movie where yeah. it's where like at least in this movie it's unclear what he's doing. He's just staring. But in the Vince Vaughn version, he's like masturbating. Oh. <laughs> I, I I prefer the implication rather than the uh, explicit, yeah. like you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we can talk more about it later, but um, <laughs> yeah. But you know, he he watches Marion take a shower, and like uh, someone comes and uh, stabs her to death as she's taking a shower, uh, which is sad because you know she decided to go back home and return the money and try to make amends. And so um, the rest of the movie is pretty much um, we see Norman <coughs> cleaning up the murder scene. Um, he like runs from the house and he's so shocked and he you know puts the body, her belongings and the, and the money in, in the car and sinks it in a swamp. And Marion's sister Lila uh uh goes to her boyfriend, Sam, and demands to know where they are. And uh, yeah, the rest of the movie is about figuring out, you know, what happened. They hire a um, private investigator, Abergast. Uh, Abergast is murdered. And so they go looking for uh, <coughs> looking for them at the uh, motel. And, um, you know, they go to the sheriff. They find out that Norman's mother actually died in a murder-suicide by poisoning. And so um, it just gets creepier and creepier. And eventually uh, they go back to uh, the motel. Sam tries to distract Norman while Lila sneaks into the house. Mm -hmm. And um, Norman becomes really agitated and he knocks Sam out. And uh, Lila hides in the fruit cellar and she discovers uh, Norman's mom's mummified body, her corpse. And uh, she's screaming in horror. Norman wearing women's clothes and a wig. He uh, chases her down to the cellar and tries to kill her. Um, Sam comes and he subdues Norman. And at the end, at the police station, the psychiatrist explains that after Norman killed his mother and a boyfriend, he mummified his mom's corpse and he pretty much like created the dissociative personality. Um, so he like dissociates as his mother. Um, he killed a couple of other people before he killed Marion Abergast. And the psychiatrist concludes now that, you know, the mother has fully taken on Norman's personality. And so the end of the movie is, uh, we see Norman sitting in a jail cell, hearing his mother's uh, voice saying the murders were all, you know, Norman's doing. And, uh, yeah, we get this really, I mean, diaconics like, and, uh, scene where you know norman stares into the the camera where he shows just how you know terrifying he is and yeah the movie ends with uh we see marion's car retrieved from the swamp and that's psycho guys it this movie was way ahead of its time i mean maybe a couple decades ahead of its time yeah, I mean, Alfred Hitchcock was such an innovator, yeah. and he was just doing such unique things with his um, filming, his editing, his his point of view, um, just how sexual he made all his films. Yeah, um, it, it's very, very um, innovative. Yeah, it was uh, super controversial too. Um, you know, the sort of morality codes in filmmaking back in the fifties and sixties were 
pretty stringent. Um, yeah. You know, e- even what we would obviously nowadays consider to be uh, a non-issue was a pretty significant hurdle for filmmakers to overcome. So, for example, um, I read somewhere that Psycho was the first uh, movie in film history to feature a toilet being flushed by a character. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And so that would be right after uh, when Norman is cleaning up the crime scene. Um, he flushes something down the toilet. And so that was, that was a, a, to us again, you know, 2023 looking back, that's a, not anything we would pick up on, but in 1960, 63 years ago, that was a pretty significant uh, hurdle and a pretty significant scene to keep in a movie and for that movie to not be censored or filmmakers, you know, production studios to not be fine, that kind of thing. Um, it also was interesting because the movie sort of drips with sexuality. I mean, literally from its opening scene where we have Janet Lee in a, a brassiere, basically. Um, yeah. And again, by 2023 standards, this is pretty tame, right? Um, it might have a little bit of a content warning. Yeah. But I mean, you can turn on regular television now, right? Network television and see that kind of thing. And then some in, in full detail. And so, but at the time, this was... This was controversial. This was innovative. Yeah. And uh, this was really pushing the boundaries and envelope of what filmmaking could could become or would become later on down the line. And so uh, Hitchcock was uh, a master of suspense, but he was also a, 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 pr- a pretty brilliant gamesman <laughs> when it came to his filmmaking. Um, it's fascinating. I, I, I read somewhere unrelated to Psycho, one of his previous movies. I don't remember which one it was. At the time, uh, filmmakers were not allowed to show a couple kissing for longer than three seconds. And so one movie, again, I don't remember. I wish I'll I'll probably look it up as we're talking a little bit. Um, In one of his movies, there's like a three minute long kissing scene, but the characters kiss for three seconds, stop, kiss for three seconds, stop and on and on for three minutes. And so (laughs) the dude, dude is like my kids when they were younger. Who's like, how far to this line can I go? Yeah. Before I get yanked back, you know, which I can appreciate um, because innovation, I think, requires risks and risks require pushing some some of the boundaries, right? Some of the, the restrictions that are in place. So I can, I can get down with it for sure. Yeah, um, it's it, it's, you know, if you, once you watch the movie, it's it's crazy how you think about, you know, the main character and the star dies within, you know, the first third of the film. Yeah. Yeah, that's taking a huge narrative risk when you do that. For and sure. So, yeah. Um, and I think that was his wife's idea, Alma, who was oh. his. Yeah, yeah. She was uh, his co-partner, um, his co-writer for everything. Uh, she was pretty much, you know, just as responsible for um, the groundbreaking uh, things they did together. As much as he is. Well, shout out to Alma Hitchcock for giving her husband his best ideas because it uh it is pretty shocking. I mean, the obviously the shower scene is iconic. Everybody knows it. It's been you know sampled a, ba- a bajillion times. It has cultural impact even now, sixty plus years later. Um, but good for her for suggesting that, and she deserves her props for sure. So shout out Alma Hitchcock. May you rest in eternal glory forever. <laughs> Guys, 
the uh, the impact. Let's talk impact before we dive into themes, right? So impact of Psycho. Uh, something that I noticed is that up until that point in the fifties, there were a lot of like sci-fi horror creature monster films. Um, you had movies like oh the thing or i'm sorry the the blob you had the the creature from the black lagoon you had the day the earth stood still that was early 50s uh, invasion of the body snatchers you had the original fly all those movies involved uh creatures that were created either they were extraterrestrial right in alien invasion or they were created by radiation they were there there was something that brought them about right but Psycho sort of turned the horror genre on its head a little bit, not a little bit, a lot, and made horror less out there and unrealistic, less science fiction-y, and way more realistic, right? I mean, we've talked about human monsters in other episodes and, you know, how scary human monsters can really be. But Psycho was really one of the first movies to introduce that, that element of human horror and sort of bring it into your living rooms, right? Or in this case, your, your bathroom <laughs> and show you how even a seemingly, you know, kind of normal guy like Norman Bates could have these deep, dark demons, secrets and murderous intentions and then take it out on uh, everybody around him, right? I mean, at the end of the movie, had he not been stopped, there would have been two more victims, you know? And I mean, Norman Bates for all intents and purposes, I don't know that they coined this term in the sixties, but, he was a serial killer, pretty much. I mean, yeah. he just waited. I mean, he was, oh, sorry. No, 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 you're good. You're good. Uh, they, they based him off of Ed Gein. Uh, yeah, they? I was yeah, going to yeah, say. Yeah. <laughs> he was, was possibly not a serial killer in the classic sense. Maybe but, not. Yeah. But it, it's interesting that. And maybe it speaks to, to Alfred Hitchcock's sort of uh, thought process that he he sort of delved into the the deepest, darkest recesses of the human mind and psyche. You know, obviously he wasn't a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Uh, he was a filmmaker, but he, he managed to turn seemingly normal things into these devious, scary things. And I think he really does a good job with that in Psycho. All right, so Chris, here's an off-the-cuff, on-the-fly question. Psycho has been has been influential across, you know, especially the horror genre. Where do you see other movies taking their influence or even being influenced by Psycho? Are there other movies that come to mind? Oh, yeah. I mean, for sure. You know, the first one I thought about was Halloween. Yeah. Um, Because, you know, something Alfred Hitchcock really does is. uh, um, Yeah, they have like a whole style uh, named after him, the Hitchcockian like movies where you know it really features like your perspective. The camera um, assumes your perspective, yeah. And so, um, yeah. So even you know when Norman you know is staring at at Marion through the people, uh, it first thing I thought of was you know the beginning of Halloween. You know when yeah, Mark, you know little Michael is wearing his his mask and you know. Remember the slash? There's like a such uh, sexual overtone with it because you know the large kitchen knife um, uh, really uh, embodies um, uh, connotes you know 
Norman's just his sexual impotence. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that was my first thought. And, you know, all those horror movies that came out in the 70s, you know, Nightmare on the Street and yep. things like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. How about you? How about you? Well, I, I definitely have the uh, the Halloween connection in my brain. So like the whole opening sequence of Halloween really follows that uh, sequence in at the Bates Motel just prior to her uh, being killed in the shower. Yeah. Um, we do have the peephole in Psycho. We have the through the mask point of view shot in Halloween, right? Uh, the knife slashes in the shower in Psycho mirror or are mirrored by the knife slashes in the opening sequence in Halloween. Yeah, yeah. Um, you have the... Uh, in Psycho, you have this sort of uh, extended shot of Marion dead on the floor in Halloween after Michael do- is done killing her, right? Judith. Yeah. You have Judith laid out on the floor. So like there's, there were pretty significant things that I was like, wait a minute, I've seen this before or something similar to this. Um, obviously, John Carpenter was uh, deeply influenced by Psycho. Um, you know, you have the Sam Loomis character in Psycho, who's uh, Marion's boyfriend, right? Uh, he's on the hunt. He's searching for her. He wants to know what happened to her. Um, and then obviously, Dr. Sam Loomis in Halloween is the psychiatrist that's hunting Michael and trying to protect Laurie Strode. So you have this really obvious sort of tips of the cap from John Carpenter to Alfred Hitchcock in, in these movies. But then also... Obviously, I'm not trying to turn this into a Halloween episode, but <laughs> Hitchcock was a master of using lighting and 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 shadows, right? Light and dark, yeah. uh, th- that motif. And I think if there's anything that John Carpenter does incredibly well, especially in that first Halloween movie, is elevating that use of darkness and shadows. Um, we don't, obviously now, 63 years later, with the context for the movie, we know who Norman Bates is. We know who, you know, the split personality, you know, sort of twist ending. But at the time, you know, he was dressed in, in his, his mom's clothes in the shadows. We didn't see his face until we didn't know what the ending was until the the very end. And so in Halloween, you have Michael Myers who hides in the shadows. Can't quite get a good glimpse of him. Right. Not quite sure who he is. You're sort of wondering if you're seeing things, you know, when you see him yeah. and then he, he disappears. So I don't know. I felt like Halloween was definitely a massive tip of the cap, yeah. you know, to it. Um, I think slasher movies in general owe Psycho a massive round of applause because it, in, a, in a lot of ways it was the first, the first slasher movie. And yeah. so, you know, everything that came after it is just building on that initial, you know, concrete foundation. Yeah. You know. I have one more, an unlikely movie. Oh, I'm curious. It's not a horror movie, but uh, the, the similar sort of uh, ending to me, it resonated. So if you've ever seen the movie Primal Fear with Richard Gere and Edward oh. Norton from the maybe mid to late 90s. I, I won't go through a synopsis of that movie, but at the end, spoiler alert. Edward Norton is proven to not have split personalities he's proven to to just have been faking it really really good acting job um, that was such a shocking scene it really was <laughs> like it caught me off guard the first time i watched it and every now and again i'll watch that movie and, and think like damn this was really well acted like pretty superb yeah. but at the end he you know sort of confesses to the crimes and is like i got you like you got me off good job you know and at the end of psycho there is that inner monologue right where 
you know, Norma Bates is talking over the top of, you know, Norman's, uh, you know, is sitting in the jail cell. And it, it seems pretty obvious that his split personality might not actually be real, that this just might be his murderous intent. And he's using the split personality defense as a cover for his, his yeah. crimes. So I, I don't know. I, I definitely made that connection. Um, I'm sure there's a, a million other yeah. ones. I mean, yeah, I, I, you know, sexual violence and or sexualized violence is such a ingrained motif in the, the slasher genre. And so, you know, when I think about, you know, I know what you did last summer or scream or even, you know, Friday the 13th, they're always, you know, people or even Halloween, people are always like doing the nasty. Before they're in the they throws, man. Nasty. They're in the throws. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, I, I mean, sexual sexualization is always like a big theme in like Hitchcock movies. You know, whether it's like Vertigo or Rear Window, um, something about just impotence and, um, yeah, women just always being sort of elusive and unable to like um, be uh, uh, tied down by men, uh, I think is something Hitchcock has uh, really uh, brought to the, the forefront uh, of a lot of films. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hitchcock was definitely had some kind of very deviant mind. (laughs) There's definitely, I mean, there's definitely something there, right? I mean, it's, it's really hard to say, well, no, uh, you know, this is just my creative persona, but that's not really who I am. I mean, I feel like there's some, some sort of like overflow between our own person into what we create or what we develop, that kind of thing, you know? Um, So yeah, for sure. What's interesting, I think about, the uh, sexualized violence in this movie is that really Janet Lee, you know, Marion Crane, she's, she's not a willing participant in that. She's, she's sort of uh, completely unaware of, you know, Norman's deviance of his obviously murderous intent, that kind of thing. So it, it, you know, when we, when we see those point of view shots through the peephole and it it really does leave you as an audience member, sort of like, with crawling skin a little bit. Yeah. Like voyeurism, right. Is not, not the greatest thing in the world guys, right. Being a peeping Tom is pretty, pretty terrible. Right. It's really terrible. (laughs) You can go to, yeah, you can go to prison. Obviously if you murder the person that's God forbid, even worse. So like there's a, there's a part of me that almost made, you know, those, uh, those point of view shots. There were at least three that I noticed one, obviously the peeping, you know, the peeping hole, right the peephole in the, in the hotel rooms, but then the actual shower scene, it's as if you're holding the knife, bringing the knife down. But then also when yeah. uh, Norman kills Arbogast, there's a confrontation on the stairs and then it pans in and you see that, that knife coming down and slashing him in the face and he falls down the stairs. Um, it almost makes it seem as if the audience is the murderer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it, it definitely makes you feel uncomfortable because you're placed into this murderer's mind. Yeah. 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 And it pretty much forces you to feel, um, an uncomfortable paralysis. Yeah. That's a good bystander, but both an accomplice. That's a good way to describe it. An uncomfortable paralysis. Yeah. I like that. Um, I, I thought there were some other cool shots where, you know, where it does, you know, even when, um, 
you know, Marion is driving. Yeah. Um, I feel like a lot of those shots were supposed to um, be her perspective, especially when it rains. Yeah. Um, supposed to like show just her psychological torment, her inability to see things clearly. Yeah. Um, Which clearly yeah. she's struggling. Yeah. You know, she uh, she's a lot of her time on screen is, is sort of her fumbling through the next step. Yeah. You know, she's uh, she's super anxious at the car dealership and then she gets to the motel. And it's what's interesting, I think, is that that's maybe the first point that she's had a chance to sort of settle down. Yeah. And then the worst happens, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think you're right. Let's talk themes. Uh, I Obviously, there are probably a million that we can point out. Um, let's go with the ones that stood out to you most. What, what themes did you catch as you were watching? What was like, Hey, yeah, this is a thing. Ooh, I mean, there's a lot. <laughs> I mean, this is why it, it might be two parts guys. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, we can probably start with some of the more obvious ones with, yeah. you know, just the sexual impotence. Yeah. Um, you know, the movie starts post coital between, uh, Sam and, uh, Marion, but um, and the next, you know, when we compare that to her conversation with, you know, with, with Borman, and no one wants her to stay. He's making her um, sandwiches. He's taking care of her. It's all. It almost feels like you know, it, it's a. Uh, it's like this weird subversion, like. Norman wants to be like a boyfriend to Marion, yeah. but he only knows how to be like a mom. Yeah, it's weird. You're making her ham and cheese sandwiches. Yeah. It's very weird. Like yeah, milk, yeah. And milk and bread. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was the 60s. I don't know what they ate. But, um, <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah. I, you know, I thought, you know, when he looks at the, through the people, like he, I thought it was great that, you know, we, it, it, yeah, it's unclear whether, you know, he's, he's masturbating or not, but I feel like he doesn't because he's, you know, he's a sexually frustrated, impotent person. And that's when his, uh, alternate is, is, is all the personality comes out, mm -hmm. um, almost to punish Marion. Um, yeah, I, I thought that was really interesting, you know, um, and the fact that he, Oh yeah, like the knife is like the extension of its, you know, his penis. It's, at least that's how I took it. Yeah, it's William Hitchcock. I'm probably right. Yeah, for sure, <laughs> for sure. Um, so I, I think the one thing that stood out to me the most was uh, maybe a theme of guilt. Yeah. Um, both characters, both main characters, are working really hard oh, to. Yeah cover their own tracks and absolve themselves yeah. of the guilt they feel. Right. I mean, Marion spends two thirds of her time on screen running. Yeah. You know, true. she's, uh, she's on the run and she's trying to get to greener pasture. She changes her, right. She trades in her car. She buys a new car. She is very obviously thinking of ways to make it, make herself unknown. Right. Yeah. And to not leave any, any trail behind her. But then you also have Norman Bates, who's, been a murderer by the time that Marion, you know, meets him at, at the motel that night. And so you almost have this manipulative sort of deviant interaction that yeah. he has with her 
sort of a way to, to make her comfortable. But then he obviously murders her. Right. But then he covers his tracks by, you know, throwing everything into the swamp, pushing the car into the swamp. Um, I'm not even sure that he was aware that there was $40,000 sitting right there on her nightstand wrapped up in a newspaper. Right. That was a, an interesting point that this wasn't. And I think the psychiatrist at the end said this was a crime, not of, of, uh, of, pa- of uh, passion, but not profit. He wasn't looking to rob her. You know, this wasn't a crime of opportunity in that sense. Um, but then I also felt like, you know, his blaming everything on his mom was a way to absolve himself of his own guilt. Yeah. You know, and so it wasn't me. It was mom. And, and the psychiatrist says it all the time. Like, it was the mom. It was the mom I had got this information from. It wasn't Norman. He's not Norman in one way. Right. Yeah. So I, I felt like there was uh, maybe some discussion, conversation taking place about guilt and the ways that people will try to absolve themselves of guilt while also trying to prevent their crimes from being made known to the world, which I think is probably a pretty human universal thing to some, you know, to different degrees. Um, so yeah, I, I, that was a, that was a primary theme. Anything else that was like, Hey, this is, this is it. This is really good. Um, I don't know. I just kept thinking about there was so much sexual overtones in this movie. <laughs> it, um, but there really was like, yeah, it's almost like, um, oh man, well, who was the, and I'm, I'm going way back like decades now. Who was the king that was obsessed with his mom? We read this stuff in like English class, literature class. Is it, is it an Oedipus complex? Oh, Oedipus. Is yeah, it Oedipus? Yeah, Oedipus yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, there seems to be some of that in play or maybe even, yeah. you know, at the time considering the, uh, where psychiatry, psych- psychology was at that time, maybe a Freudian sort of uh, approach to the, to the film, right? Uh, you know, sons are obsessed with their mom kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. W- which, you know, obviously has sort of been uh, pushed to the fringes of mainstream psychology at this point, <laughs> you know, 60 plus years later. But it seems like there's some of that involved, maybe an Oedipus complex or some Freudian psychology related to Norman and his interaction, his relationship with his mom. Um, he obviously kills his mom too, which is, yeah, was and, uh, surprising. Yeah. And it, it was interesting because, you know, his, um, I don't know how this becomes a theme, but just all the references to the birds, you know, how he stuffs um, the birds as his hobby. Yeah. And his crane, she's from Phoenix. Yeah. Um, his mom is sort of stuffed and immortalized. Oh God. Um, so, <laughs> so it's like, it's this weird, like, um, manifestation of it, of his like love for his mom. Um, it, he somehow preserves her body. It, it, you know, I, I think it is incestuous. And it is. So, I think so too, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, it's just like his, uh, is, you know, they're both, both Marion and Norman are trying to control something. And, yeah. You know, at least Marion is willing to let go of it, but Norman just pretty much, you know, stuffs it and makes you his. It's weird. <laughs> Even to finish that sentence is weird. So here, here's a, here's, here's why I think in part you might be on the right track for sure with the sort of sexualized, you know, not even undertones, like overtones in the movie. 
you know, it's like, am I a pervert for like keep thinking about this? <laughs> <laughs> I read I read an article <clears throat> a couple weeks back on the psychology of the movie, and uh, it's thought that given given those themes, that the house where you know deceased Norma operates from or is held captive, her body's kept captive, I guess. Anyway, the house behind the the Bates Motel might represent uh, Freud's psychoanalytic theory of the id, the ego, and the superego, which I find really interesting. Um, so I won't give you a psychology class because you don't you won't need it. But um, in the most basic sense, right, id are sort of the instincts of an individual, the drive, right, the uh, the hidden sort of things that. A person has, which could, you know, for Norman be those maybe repressed sexuality, maybe the impotence, maybe the, uh, the sense of, um, underdeveloped sexuality that, you know, he's never had a chance to realize, right. That comes out in some really dark, disturbing, murderous, disgusting ways. The ego is sort of the reality, right? It's the uh, it's the basis for how a person functions, the uh, everyday sort of, you know, day to day functioning of an individual. And then the superego is sort of the moral conscience, right? The moral compass of a person. Um, and so what in psychoanalytic theory, right, the ego sort of functions as the go between between the id and the superego. So like if you look at it in terms of the, the three stories of the house, you have the id, which is the basement where the mom is kept right in the dark embalmed mummified for whatever purposes Norman has for her, which is just awful and disturbing. You have the first floor gonna, of the home, which is where I'm people, gonna, huh? I'm going to vomit. Well. I know it's more, it's <laughs> terrible, but like, I think you're onto something pretty significant with the movie though. Right. I mean, you know, that, that main, main level of the home where the average person would walk into, right. And be, welcomed in as a guest or as someone who should be there that that would represent the ego and then the superego would be that top floor um you know so it's an interesting theory i think it it considering the uh, sexuality in the movie i think there's it's not a hard connection to make i think that it fits for sure and then you know you couple that with norman's obsessive compulsive whatever with his mom and you've got a pretty pretty compelling pretty compelling case so that's my thought <laughs> and you guys can't see chris grimacing on the you know through the audio but i i think his level of disturbed just went up exponentially so not inordinately <laughs> it's it's a disturbing i mean even by the 60 standards uh, actually, let me rephrase it. Even by 2023 standards, it's still a pretty disturbing movie. Um, and if you consider the fact that Hitchcock really didn't hold back and he pushed against the sort of moral codes of filmmaking of the day and pushed the envelope in, into showing audiences what they generally had not seen to that point, uh, it really does stand as a piece of shock cinema, even. You know, not just great filmmaking and not just great horror filmmaking, but just shock cinema overall that people would have watched, uh, you know, something as benign as flushing a toilet and, and been potentially up in arms over that. Right. Or a, a woman in her brassiere as, as being super scandalous and controversial, you yeah. know, so. 
it, you know, even um, the fact that Norman is revealed to wear his mom's clothes at the end of the movie. Yeah. And they say he's, um, I mean, this is no longer a correct word to use, but, you know, the police officer says, oh, he must be a transvestite or what we would consider transgender. Yeah. Um, but the psychiatrist says, no, Norman really believes um, that he's his mom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah terrifying. yeah but uh andy perkins is he's he was also he's he was gay and um um you know the fact that you know they they did that at a time where you know gay people gay uh gay people could not you know had to hide their sexuality i think it was super transgressive yeah i i agree yeah. um it definitely would have been shocking to hear it right seeing uh, imagine yourself in 1960 Growing up with censorship, you know, the censorship codes and moral codes, all of a sudden you sit in this movie and, you know, it's one shocking, shocking thing after another. It almost, you know, has this. Yeah, it's uh, it's rough. It can it can be rough. I, I obviously now 60 plus years later, it can be pretty off-putting to hear the way the you know, things were phrased back then. But at the, at the time, culturally, that was, you know. Maybe widely accepted, you know, vocabulary, lingo, vernacular, that kind of thing. Um, we would obviously use probably different, uh, take a different approach to that conversation now, you know, filmmaking now. Um, it's important to say that. Oh, I'm not even sure how to say it in light of what we just said. <laughs> so the movie describes that there's a conversation about Norman being a transvestite or not. Okay. I think it's important to say that the movie does not depict Norman's transvestitism or alleged transvestitism as being the cause of his murderous intent. Okay. So like that to say that being a transvestite in that day doesn't make you a murderer, right. Or does it lead to murder? So I think that's important to say. Um, it just became an interesting sort of conversation point for who Norman was. And in some ways it was a visual representation of the split that had, you know, that they were theorizing had gone on in his mind that he was his mom and to be his mom would be to take on her, not just personality, but also her clothing and that kind of thing. So, Oh man. All right. So favorite, if, if you could, if you could, was there a favorite scene you had in the movie? Um, man, you know, my favorite scene was always, um, scene in the basement you know okay. and shower scene is very famous but um just the um you know as the chair slowly turns as mama mama bait slowly turns and uh seeing lila's reaction um the lens flare her scream and the um the uh you know the light bulb swinging back and forth kind of like yeah uh, kind of Kind of, we felt like that too. Something was clearly like we were being all thrown off kilter too. Yeah. And um, I just love when she turns around, when she hears the footsteps. I think most filmmakers would have made it seem like they would have already put Norman there. Yeah. But the fact that Hitchcock decided to make Norman run into the scene. Yeah. Um, really elevated the tension. Um so I always feel like the best filmmakers, like what they do to create the, the, the suspense and the tension is they make the scene 
almost feel like it's too long. Yeah. And so I, I just love that whole, that whole, that whole scene, how it plays out. And oh, that's great. Building the tension. Um, because, you know, when Norman finally appears in the scene and you see just Norman's ecstasy, you're like, oh, my God, this is so crazy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the scene almost lingers like an awkward silence a little bit, like. Yeah. Just a little too long, a little bit too uncomfortably. Yeah. You're like, what's going on? Yeah. Like, you know? Um, yeah. And, you know, in most slasher movies, I feel like. You know, the killer would have already been there ready to throw his blade down. But yeah, um, like yeah, he would have jumped out of a corner or, uh, you know, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. I, I love it. I think I think you're right. Um, so for me, my favorite scene, something that I, I really, really loved in the movie was the uh, sort of dual messages in the shower scene. So. You have this, when she steps into the shower, the water is pouring from the, you know, from the shower head. It almost symbolizes this sense of relief. Like she can sort of wash things away. Right. And you baptizing herself. Yeah. And you see the water go down the drain. And then after, after Norman, you know, kills her, there's, you know, she slumped over the edge of the bathtub and there's another water scene. And it shows the water sort of circling the drain. And the water circles the drain and then it's sort of uh, a fade in shot of her eye and then a pan out shot of her of her face. Yeah. And so it's almost this conflicting message that where the water was symbolic on one end of Marion's relief, it also on the other end was representative of Norman's murderous intent, like he's, you know, essentially drained the life out of her. Right. I mean, almost very literally in that sense. And yeah. so you see this water draining down, circling the drain close. I mean, zoom in shot of the drain and then fade in shot of, of her eye, her lifeless eyes. And so I, I thought that was pretty masterful. Um, it just, it's not the kind of filmmaking you would see nowadays. I mean, for, for a filmmaker to, to sort of take that approach would be super purposeful. And, and I feel like it would be a, a movie that's not the norm now, you know, but to use those, uh, those, those pan in, you know, zoom out shots are, are just really terrific in, in sort of conveying the, the message and the intent. So I, I thought that was, I, that was my favorite sort of three minutes on screen was like, wow, that, that, that use of these two images, which is really the same thing with different messages was just really, really, really well done. So yeah. Hitchcock tip of the cap to you and Alma again, for giving him his best ideas. You know, Janet Lee was not a a small star at the time. She was pretty, pretty big name. So to kill off your main, you know, your main character 30 minutes into the movie and then develop uh, the rest of the movie around a pretty relatively unknown actor is pretty ballsy. Like (laughs) that's a pretty ballsy move. The circumstances, you know, um, with the, the production, it was really crazy because uh, Hitchcock actually funded most of the movie with mm. his own money. Um, and so cause he couldn't find, you know, uh, a uh, production company that wanted to, to finance the movie. So he decided he was just going to do it with himself and um, uses uh, 
Alfred Hitchcock Presents crew. Um, he was taking on a huge uh, financial and career risk during this movie. I mean, when you have flushing toilets and, you know, brassieres on camera, like that's a pretty risky, <laughs> a pretty yeah. risky proposition. Again, 1960, yeah. like you're, you're breaking the, in, a, in essence, you, you put a target on your back as being the one who broke the moral fabric of the nation. Like, you know, I, I don't know that many would have the, the, the guts to do that. Yeah. So. And, and it's funny because, you know, he, he was like a short, stout. He was. Mild manner. Soft-spoken yeah. British man, always yeah. wearing a suit. <laughs> but dude was a genius wrapped up in, in, you know, sort of an ordinary person, right? Or a seemingly, uh, you know, unassuming person. Yeah. I, I can respect it for sure. Um, Chris, we are about 50 minutes in. Do we want to do a part two and explore a little further? Um, yeah, I think so. I Let's mean, do it. There are a lot of things I think we have to talk about, like family, just yeah. the weird inversions of family. Yeah. Um, yeah, even the way Hitchcock portrays women, I think that's yes. something worth discussing. Okay, yeah. so uh, guys, we, we're about 50 minutes in. We are going to opt for Psycho Part 2, which will probably release at the same time as, as this episode, um, yeah. just so that you have both in hand. Um, we sort of did this with The Exorcist. Uh, when we reviewed The Exorcist, we did Part 1, Part 2. Um, I do want to delve into some, some deeper symbolism, some deeper messages and themes. I think it's worth it. And uh, yeah, so we'll do that. Reminder, we've got some great episodes coming up. Aside from Psycho Part 2, we've got another bonus episode next week with uh, we're going to review with a special guest, Who, Blood and Honey. A slasher movie about Winnie the Pooh. I've not seen it yet, but I'm going to. <laughs> and it'll be great. And then we, we've got a... Uh, Let's see, we've got the Blair Witch Project, we've got Beetlejuice, we've got The Sixth Sense, we've got a, a ton of just great movies on deck for the next probably five or six weeks. Um, yeah, guys, thanks for tuning in. We, uh, we appreciate it as always. And uh, Chris and I will see you for part two of Psycho. We'll see you then. Thank you.